0: No, you tell it. No, you.
1: I'm not telling it.
0: You should totally tell it. (laughs) Well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, you tell it is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story. Giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. The first story in the second half of our what I know show takes us on the painful and isolating journey struggling with stubborn fibroids. Our storyteller must find the strength to physically and mentally overcome the enemy inside. Here's knowing is half the battle written by Sharia Mattis and performed by Michelle Carlo. What better way to celebrate women's history month and 10 years of know you tell it than this stellar story swap introduced by their director, Erica Iverson.
1: Thank you all so much for coming. Um, Tonight is really special for me. As long as I can remember, there was a poster in my basement. It was a reprint of a Cuban poster proclaiming, La Dia Internacional de la Mujer. Um, And now it's hanging in my living room in Brooklyn. Um, my mom was a second-wave feminist with all of the mostly good things that went along with that. And now, as my feminism has grown and changed to include the wide spectrum of gender and sexuality, I am so grateful to be a part of something as special as Know You Tell It. I have been here for most of the shows, and I was involved in the very first one as a... Uh, a uh, Storyteller and uh, basically went up to Kelly Jean afterward and said, We have to keep doing this. We will keep doing this. So now I would like to welcome to the stage our next two storytellers, Sharia Mattis and Michelle Carlo. Maria, you get to join me here. Hello. 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 After doing two story meetings on Zoom, we finally got to meet each other yesterday in person. Yes. So exciting. So I know it's a bit of a cliche, but you are a woman in comedy. Yes. Do you have a story about either a triumph or a smackdown, as, as uh, my college friends used to refer to it, the Heisman Someone giving you the Heisman as a woman in comedy.
2: Yes. I think, okay, so I have a little, because like being, especially like a black woman in comedy, a femme woman in comedy in particular, people don't really take me seriously as a comic or they don't believe that I'm a comic a lot of the Mm times. Like I literally got a lot of like, you're not a comic. You're not a comic. Like I could literally be on stage telling jokes (laughs) and somebody's going to be like, wait, you a comic? Like, yes, that's what I'm doing. Um, So I got a lot of, like, I got a little, like, bullying from the the broke dusties in the comedy community. (laughs) And, like, and one particular broke dusty outside of the, the grizzly pear, I mean, Hannah knows that's, like, the worst place is <laughs> like the butthole of New York comedy. <laughs> like, like I got like really like bullied, like like really like in my face bullied about the the fact that I even wanted to was a comic. And then um, months later, I started winning competitions. And I started getting like booked more. And I saw one of those the worst broke Dusty on the train, and I was drunk. Um, and so I basically just told him about himself.
3: <laughs>
1: and yes. it was working you did. <laughs> As you should, as you should. <laughs> well, we're excited uh, to hear your story, Knowing is Half the Battle, written by Sharia Mattis and read by Michelle Carlo.
3: Knowing is Half the Battle. I used to think I knew my body, especially my pussy and all its accoutrements. I took some health classes. Oh, I know all about the clitoris, the cervix, and all the turkey giblets inside. But while I was walking around feeling cocky about my pussy, they were in there, just sitting in my uterus, listening, plotting, scheming. I am, of course, talking about My fibroids, the little monsters. Now if you've got a uterus and you're listening to this wondering, what are fibroids? They're in you. (laughs) I don't make the rules. These sneaky bald-headed bitches are in 80% of uteruses and most people don't even know. they are growths in the uterus that don't cause cancer and for most people don't even cause problems, but they had it out for me. Now while most people's fibroids are grape or pea-sized, mine were the size of grapefruits and eggplants. And if you're thinking, couldn't you feel them? Hasn't that been uncomfortable? Yes, of course I could feel them! (laughs) And of course they were uncomfortable! (laughs) But I'm a queer black woman with anxiety. I am always uncomfortable. And I told people I told people constantly. But here's the thing about being a queer black woman with anxiety, it takes a long time for someone to actually hear you. So you eventually learn to become silent. The fibroids, however, would not be silenced. They wanted to be seen, perceived, and ungoverned. They grew so large, I could no longer ignore them. One day, while masturbating, I discovered these no-net heifers had grown so large, one of them was blocking my cervix. These fibroids had closed my business without even me knowing. So I turned to my primary care physician, Google. (laughs) And that's when I found out about fibroids. I then went to a Planned Parenthood and was diagnosed by a very understanding black woman after specifically asking her to examine me for them. She explained my options with a calm, knowing bedside manner that would have put anyone at ease. Except for me. As soon as she mentioned the various surgeries I would need to remove them, I started bawling. But she assured me that I wouldn't have to have surgery if I didn't want to. I didn't have to fight them. I could just learn to live with them. Take some time to think about what you want to do. There's no need to panic. I immediately panicked. Mm -hmm. Suddenly these hateful, dusty skeezers skeezers called fibroids became the center of my life. I started doing extensive research. Obviously by that I mean doom doom scrolling at three in the morning. And I started to discover all these things that I had been told to stop complaining about were actually worth complaining about. My monthly descents into suicidal darkness, probably not normal. The constant stomach pains, the never-ending peeing, the back aches, the Red Sea periods that look like the scene from The Shining. All of it was being caused by these lumpy, lopsided, evil-ass fibroids. It was like a bad horror movie. The call is coming from inside the uterus. (laughs) I was ready to fight back. I was ready to take on these fibroids with everything Medicaid had in its arsenal. Then the pandemic hit, and suddenly it was just me and my knock-kneed, no upper lip-having-ass fibroids. Stuck in the house, no doctors to help me fight them, and a whole lot of apocalyptic stress. They got bigger, and I would say stronger. And by the time COVID restrictions had eased up enough to go to the doctors again, them bitches were on their Hulk shit. The doctors tried everything. I had multiple MRIs where I would hear doctors talk about my uterus like she wasn't right there in the room. They called her gigantic, warped, stretched, extremely large, and just reckless. My uterus is from Bed-Stuy, style, right? So I know she wanted to take off her ovaries and fight them. <laughs> I was given a hormone called Lupron which gave me menopause symptoms, but did nothing to shrink the fibroids. So I was just walking around sweating and crying and still filled to the brim with these doofy looking balls of misshapen pussy meat. (laughs) (laughs) I had an extremely painful procedure called a uterine artery embolization that cuts the blood supply from the femoral artery to the uterine artery. And this is supposed to starve the fibroids so they die. But I woke up during the procedure to one of the radiologists saying, oh my god, her uterus is gigantic! And I politely asked to be put back under. <laughs> <laughs> I woke up again the cramps so painful I threw up blood. The pain lasted for weeks but those fibroids did not die. Those uneven matzo ball built bitches were stubborn. The only procedure left was a hysterectomy, a word that scared the shit out of me when it was first recommended, but that I again knew nothing about. I never wanted biological children, but I still thought of a hysterectomy as a failure, an end to a core facet of my womanhood. My dumbass. even asked the doctor if I would grow a mustache after the surgery. After doing a little bit more research and a lot of mulling over, I accepted that it would be the best option for me. Besides, I've been in the queer community long enough to know that a uterus does not make a woman. I found a gynecological surgeon who specialized in laparoscopic hysterectomies on people with large fibroids. I call her the Big Uterus Whisperer. She was kind and gave me lots of information about what was going to happen and when. When she told me I was keeping my ovaries, I sincerely asked if my eggs would drop out of my coochie without the uterus to keep them inside. (laughs) And she didn't even laugh. She almost did, but she (laughs) held it in. (laughs) She was the best surgeon I could have asked for but I was still pretty sure she was going to kill me on the table. (laughs) I felt frozen with terror about the prospect of having a hysterectomy, but shaken at the thought of having to lug around a uterus full of tumors for the rest of my life. I I couldn't enjoy life just the same. The fibroids were ever present in in every moment and interaction, the fibroids were ever present in every moment and interaction, but I was the only one who was aware of them. Even joyous occasions were hampered by their presence. When I was passed at my first comedy club, the fibroids were there, knocking on my bladder. When I tried to have penetrative sex, they were guarding the door, not letting nothing in. I had prided myself on my power bottom status and now I couldn't even take strap anymore? <laughs> These fibroids had blocked my cervix and my blessings. Why was this happening to me? I wanted to fight my fibroids, but these hoes were beating my ass. I knew if if there was anyone to blame, it would be my mother. (laughs) And in a way, I was right. Fibroids are hereditary. My mom had dealt with them her entire adult life, and I had overheard her talking about them with my Aunt Janelle and was promptly told to stop minding grown folks' business but now that grown folks' business was my business, she felt at ease to share a little story. In her sixth or seventh month of pregnancy, she was told that there was a large fibroid blocking her vaginal canal. There would be no way for the fetus to pass through safely and no way to remove it without harming the fetus. They would have to terminate. My mom was heartbroken, but just before the termination came, she felt sudden, sudden, throbbing, unbearable pain. She went to the doctor who discovered her little fetus had grown some big-ass feet and kicked that fibroid right out of the way. And that fetus was me. And be, you can clap. I, I think that merits clapping. That's, that's like some superhero stuff. And before you ask, Yes, that was extremely painful for my mother. My bad, Mom. But I was born, and now I pay bills and cry on the subway. (laughs) The point of this story is, this struggle with fibroids was not new. This is an ancient blood feud. I've kicked fibroids' asses before I was even born, and now I need to do it again. I wish I could tell you that this story of fetal triumph inspired me to stomp into the operating room ready for battle. But that would be bullshit. I was terrified. I walked into the operating room like it was the Green Mile. (laughs) I sobbed right up until they knocked me out for the surgery. It was a six-hour procedure that required two surgical teams. Apparently one of my fibroids was clutching my appendix so they both had to go down together. Some of the surgical tools ripped up my vulva as they were pulling those hard-headed, yuck-mouth fibroids out of me. They had to give me so many stitches. My persoire looked like Frankenstein's head. But those ashy-toed, knuckle-looking-ass fibroids were gone. Victory was mine. Clap to her, not me. At my follow-up a month and a half later, I had one thing on my mind. I wanted to see them. I wanted to look those fibroids in the eye and tell them they had lost. My doctor showed me the picture she'd taken after the surgery. There, on a little blue sheet, were my uterus, my tubes, and those backstabbing fibroids. I stared at them, hoping to feel like a victorious conqueror, but instead... I just felt a little bit sad. Uh, Have you ever had a mouse in your apartment? The little bastard's been keeping you up, eating your food and dropping plague turds all over your house for weeks. (laughs) And then, one day, you catch him. You look at him in the trap, struggling desperately to escape, and you just feel sad for him. You realize he's not the enemy. You've made him out to be in your mind. Just a sad, fragile creature, much like you. That's how I felt when I saw those fibroids. They weren't these duplicitous monsters trying to destroy me from the inside out. They were just the reality of my body. They'd been with me for decades, clamoring for attention. Because of them, I had to take my health seriously for the first time in my adult life and I was able to connect with my mother in ways that we hadn't been able to since I was a child. They even inspired a pilot and some decent jokes. Mm. They weren't the enemy I had made them out to be. So I made my peace, apologized for calling them lover-built bootleg minions, and whispered my final goodbye. This journey isn't over. My pussy is healed but my relationship with my body still needs work. I have to give myself time and space to reconnect with myself after the trauma of two surgeries and a bunch of hormones. I've got a lot of healing to do, but I'm ready for it. So if you're listening to this and you have fibroids, which you definitely do, I don't make the rules, go talk to your gynecologist. Give those knock kneed, bloated bitches a big old hug, and then kill the shit out of them.
0: Switching it up, our final storyteller reflects on her youthful battle to control her hair in an attempt to redefine her identity. Viva la Curlvolution! was written by Michelle Carlo, and is performed here by Sharia Mattis. We're at
1: the last, we're at the last story, um, written by Michelle Carlo. She is well known, if you don't know her, you should, in the storytelling scene. She is an actor, an author, a storyteller. Um, and uh, I was so psyched when you um, said that you were going to you know, do the show with us, but I was also like, oh... What is she going to think about no-you-tell-it? No-you-tell-it is, is a little bit different. When people ask Kelly Jean, is it like the moth? We always have to say, kind of? <laughs> um, so what was your experience with no-you-tell-it? Um, how is it uh, different or, or um, the same as what you were expecting? What did you come out of it thinking about?
3: It's a lot of questions there, Erica. I know. Pick one.
1: <laughs> well, first off, this ain't nothing
3: like no-moth. <laughs> because The Moth is a storytelling slam. Yes. You, go, you pay your money, you go sit in the room, they pick ten names out of a hat, and um, you may or may not get picked. Yes. And then it goes on from there. This is different. This is curated. You pick You pick the people that are going to be in it, and um, you workshop your story for a couple of weeks with the group, and then you read each other's story, which I thought was really cool. I mean, I'm a writer, too. Dove, you're a storyteller, you're a writer, too, right? Mm-hmm. But... Um, Yeah, I I thought it was really great. Um, This is a brand new story. So um, anyone that's in the audience, I'm looking at you, Jennifer, who's been hearing me tell stories for the past (coughs) years. um, (laughs) This is brand new, and I'm very excited to have Sharia read its debut. I I can't think of another person that I would, well, I can think of, but no. I was going to say your fibroid. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I was going to say get one of the fibroids. No, no. no. I, did, well, I
1: wasn't going to go there, and I did. Sorry. We're glad that the fibroids aren't here yes, to read glad. it. We're very glad. <laughs> but we're very happy uh, that we will now hear Michelle Carlo's story, Viva la Curlvolution, read by Sharia Mattis. Let me not cry. Sorry. Let me
2: <laughs> you read the shit out of my story. Let me do you justice. Okay. <sighs> Viva la curvolution. In the 1970s, my family survived Vietnam, hippies, black power, gay power, women's lib, and the infamous 1977 New York City blackout. But sometimes it seemed my family would not survive. My favorite aunt, my mom's youngest sister. Her name was Marisol, but I called her Titi Dulce, sweet auntie. And for some in my family, she was un troublemaker. (laughs) On the outside, she was like most Latinx women of her generation. She married young and had babies, but she also had another calling to raise the political consciousness of our family. For those of you who didn't live through it, everything was political in the 1970s. The number of your POW bracelets, the height of your platform shoes, and the texture of your hair, especially the texture of your hair. In my large, proud, and sometimes quite loud, Puerto Rican family, you'll find light beige, darker beige, Brown and darker brown members whose hair ranges from pin straight to Afro texture. And back in the pre-hippie early 1960s when I was born, it was not uncommon that instead of asking if a new baby had two eyes, 10 fingers, and 10 toes, the burning question would be bad hair or good hair. But all hair was good hair to Titi Dolce. Straight, curly, coily and everything in between, even though her hair manifesto didn't always sit well with my family. One night after coming over, she went to say goodnight to my mother, found her in the bathroom wrapping her hair and said, Lucy, I can't believe you still wrap your hair in those orange juice cans every night. This isn't 1950, you know. Women have choices now. Keeping your curls is an act of protest. You don't need to look more American. We are American. And she tossed her mane of thick, naturally wavy, natural chestnut brown hair and left. Easy for you to say, said my mom to the closing door. That was the summer I turned 12, when either hormones or Watergate turned my acceptably wavy, light brown, light auburn childhood hair into a tangled bush of wiry orange frizz. No comb could go through it without a half bottle of herbal essence conditioner. I could have picked it out with an Afro pick were I allowed one, but that implement was forbidden by my mother, whose only sign her father was half Afro-Latino was the jet black tightly coiled silky hair she wrapped and ironed into submission daily. As for me, my orange bush was gathered every morning into a tight ponytail, circled with a perimeter of barrettes and bobby pins in a futile attempt to tame the frizz. No one in my family had hair like mine. And when I started to go to school again, I found out no one else did either. In those days, public school went from grammar school, K through sixth grade, junior high, seventh through ninth, and then high school. And while the transition from grammar school to seventh grade can be difficult for some kids, it was worse for me because of my hair. I remember Tina and Niecy, black pride besties from the projects who treated me as their pet project. They'd take turns trying to pick out my hair in the locker room before gym class saying, look, it's almost like ours. And then there were Marie and Antoinette, Sicilian American twins with very curly hair who at lunchtime would comb out what Tina and Nisi had done and braid me saying, look, it's almost like ours. I accepted their attentions without protest because Tina and Nisi kept razor blades in their afros. And Marie and Antoinette had penny rolls hidden in their scarves. After all, this was the Bronx. So once again, I was almost like everybody and exactly like nobody, just like it was at home. Then one day after school, Titi Dulce came to pick us up for a shopping trip and found my mother once again struggling to get my crown of shame, subdued enough for public consumption. Lucy, let it go. Let Michelle's hair go free. We have choices now. Easy for you to to say when your daughter has perfect hair like you. Por favor, nena, please sit still. That night, my imperfect self prayed to El Señor. God, our Father, to whom I had been taught to turn in times of trouble. Please, God, please, 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 let me wake up with normal hair so my mom and the kids at school will leave me alone. But the next morning, I woke up with my hair still bright orange, still frizzy, still bushy, and I cried because that Monday was the day our class pictures were going to be taken. And I didn't want to look like me. Then, while sitting in front of the TV with my bowl of alphabets, watching Bill Cosby's Fat Albert, the answer to my prayers appeared during the commercial break, like a vision of Christ on a cracker. It was called Curl Free. The natural curl relaxer for complete styling freedom. And showed beautiful young women with straight, shiny, submissive and perfect black, brown and blonde hair. Well, I bet it works on red hair too, I thought. And I went on a one child crusade to get my mother to buy and use it on me. And to my surprise, she did. And the next Sunday, she moved a kitchen chair into our tiny bathroom and put on her oldest house coat and a pair of Playtex living dishwashing gloves to perform God's miracle <laughs> on me. But while she mixed it up, I had second, third, and fourth thoughts. For one thing, it stank. Worse than the run over dead dog I once saw in the street. Worse than the bathroom after my brother used it. Worse than the worst thing you can imagine. And it wasn't just the stench, but the sting. Even though my mother had opened the bathroom and all the other windows in the apartment wide, our eyes teared and we both started sneezing. My father came in from the kitchen, took one look and sniff, grabbed my brother, and ran out the door. I thought I heard him say, good (laughs) luck. Did I say the worst thing was the stink? No, it was the sting. The second my mother combed that horrid potion through my hair, my scalp started to itch, ripple, then burn. Mommy, how long do I have to have this on? I don't remember what she answered, but about 10 minutes in, I started screaming. My mother bent me over the tub and sprayed me from the shower saying, don't open your eyes or you'll go blind. (laughs) When I finally dared open them, I almost wish I had gone blind because a stranger stared back at me in the mirror. Yes, my hair was straight all right, and now half the volume, but it smelled like rotting garbage. And I didn't know who I was anymore. That night, I prayed to El Senor again, saying, please, please, please give me my real hair back. Only El Senor was apparently on holiday because when I woke up, I was still a smelly straight-haired stranger. And I cried again. No matter how many times we washed my hair that weekend or how much Shalimar perfume my mom sprayed over me, the malodor still lingered. And when Monday came, I had to go back to school and take my picture. But before the pictures was gym class, where Tina and Nisi looked at me in shock. What did you do? You look white now. Mm. My mom made me, I said. I mean, what could I say? That I brought this travesty upon myself? When it was time for the photos, the photographer held a tissue over his nose as I stared straight ahead and tried not to cry again. But worse came at lunchtime, when Marie and Antoinette squealed, oh, how pretty, and whipped out their combs without even noticing the smell. But after a minute, Marie screamed, dropped her comb, and ran away. I looked down and saw it on the ground with a big clump of hair in it and looked back up to see Antoinette holding the other comb with an even bigger clump. Go home quick before you die. (laughs) She croaked before she too ran off. I ran home as fast as I could, because I did not not want to die in the street like that poor dead dog. And after my mother had rewashed, conditioned, and combed through my hair again, I looked in the mirror and thought I would die. My once shoulder length hair was now patchy and asymmetrical, 10 years before I would wear a similar style as a defiant art student. Mm -hmm. We have to cut it off, Nana. It's the only way. So out came the good scissors. And by the time my mom was done, I had what people called a pixie. Or close enough. I went back to school. The stink finally faded. And within two weeks, new hair started to grow back in. Still wiry, still curly, still orange, but never again at that volume level and no one played beauty parlor on me ever again. It was a miracle! <laughs> and another miracle happened. My mother finally stopped fighting with her hair, somewhat, and started using a new Con Air blow dryer to create soft waves where once tight coils had been. And when Titi Dolce came over next and saw my mother, she nodded her approval. When she saw me, she didn't even blink. She just hugged me and said, all revolutions have to end sometime. Choices have to be made. Sometimes it's not easy. But I'm glad to see you're finally making your own. My mother is now in her 80s and wears her soft white hair completely natural. Titi Dulce is in her 70s. She recently chose to stop dyeing her natural chestnut hair and can't wait until it grows back real. As for me, my hair is still just like me. Almost like everybody, exactly like nobody, and it submits to no one. Thank you.
0: That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of Know You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.